come today not to entertain each other, but to praise God. As a matter of fact, no part of our service ought to be designed to entertain anybody. Not even God wants to be entertained. He wants to be worshiped. He wants to be praised, but he doesn't want to be entertained. And there's a difference between the two. And I think it's our place to find out what that difference is. He's taken my wife and I away for a few days and brought us back safely and for that, we're grateful. We're grateful for your prayers. And certainly when we are away, we miss you. Uh, but sometimes it's just good to smell the fumes as you ride down the road. Just, just change the scenery. Look at different trees. See different cows. How the other part lives. You know, all of that is good for me to be able to come back rejuvenated. And my wife to be rejuvenated to keep me rejuvenated so that I can keep on keeping on. So you all pray for us that the Lord keep blessing us the way he has. I'm so glad to have Brother Otis back. I want to thank him for that prayer this morning on behalf of us and all mankind. But somebody else's loss was certainly our gain. And we thank God that he took him where he took him and he learned what he needed to learn. And, and now he's back with us, a richer man as a result of it. And he'll be the first to tell you that. And for those who are still considering us, those of you who have been studying with us, those of you who've been visiting with us, we want you to know we don't take your visit for granted. And we want you to know that unlike in many other places in this city today, you're worshiping with a church this morning where if anything is said that you don't believe is in this book, you can challenge it. I, I'm not one of those preachers who sits high and looks low. God doesn't give any preacher that kind of status. I'm not somebody you can't approach. There is no hierarchy before you can get to me. You can get to me directly. Right today after this service is over, anything I say that does not meet with God's approval through this book, you call me on it. I need to be called on it. I want to be called on it because I'm trying to go to heaven. I'm not trying to lead anybody astray. And I decided a long time ago that when you preach God's word, folks not going to like you. I understand that. That comes with the territory. But God's word must be preached. God must be left truthful. And every man, the Bible says, a liar. So here we are today considering again another portion of God's word. I, I really want to talk to you you know, about a lot of things. Every time I get up here, I got a lot of things I want to talk to you about. But I have to decipher those things because some of the things that I want to talk to you about, you're not ready for. Some of the things that I want to talk to you about, you're ready for. 
And my responsibility is to share with you those things that I believe you're ready for so that we can get to a point where we'll be ready for some other things that we may not be ready for today. Right now, I think what's most pressing in our world is this whole attitude about how life isn't fair and how we as Christians must learn how to live continuously for Christ in a world that is presenting us with more and more challenges every day. All the frustration of living in the world today. We don't know what's coming next. We can't call it anymore. But if anybody has to stand firm on what we know to be the will of God is those of us who name the name of Christ. Those who, of, of us who've said, I believe that God is in control. So today I thought it uh, good if I talked with you about things God does and does not guarantee. Things, we ought to be able to make a distinction so that we can live effectively in this life about things God guarantees and things that he doesn't guarantee. So that we won't try to place guarantees where there are no guarantees. I want us to understand this thing clearly because it may be the difference between us staying with the Lord or leaving the Lord in these last evil days. All of us, I think, at one point have felt the way Solomon felt. In, in Ecclesiastes, I'm going to ask you to turn over there with me. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. The wise man Solomon talked about some of the same things that we're dealing with today. And some of the hard questions of life with which we are faced. When we look at verse 1 of chapter 4 of Ecclesiastes, the Bible says, Solomon says, Then I returned, and I'm reading from the New King James Version. Then I returned and considered all the oppression that is done under the sun. And look, the tears of the oppressed, but they have no comforter. On the side of the oppressors, there was power, but they have no comforter. Therefore, I praised the dead who were already dead more than the living who are still alive. And then if we, if we continue with that, it, in verse 4 he says, I saw for all toil and every skillful work a man is envied by his neighbor. This is also vanity and grasping for the wind. Fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. Basically, what I want to draw attention to there is the fact that Solomon is really talking about this whole idea of fairness and how those who are 
powerless in life have very little to rely on, it seems. That nobody speaks out for those who are less fortunate anymore. I read, as I prepared for this lesson, this little article that appeared in a Kentucky newspaper some time ago. I thought it was appropriate for us to talk about the befuddlement of the age in which we live. Somebody said, I used to think I was poor. Then they told me I wasn't poor, I was needy. Then they told me it was self-defeating to think of myself as needy, that I was culturally deprived. Then they told me deprived was a bad image, that I was underprivileged. Then they told me that underprivileged was overused, that I was disadvantaged. Say, I still don't have a dime, but I have a great vocabulary. <laughs> That seems to be the way things are today. We, we seem to be answering questions that nobody's asking, and we don't have the answers for the questions that people are asking. We're befuddled. And every now and then we change the terminology, but the problem remains the same. I think we're where Solomon was when he wrote this. It's an issue that frustrates us all in our world today, and it's this issue of unfairness, that things just aren't the way they ought to be. Solomon was reflecting on this truth when he wrote in that first verse that the poor have no comforter and there is power, but the power is on the side of the oppressor. In each one of us, there is an inner voice that tells us that all things should be fair. Some of us entertain that. That's why we have referees in sports games and judges in courtrooms because we have this innate sense of right and wrong. And we serve a God of this universe who tells us that there is right and wrong. And then we see oppression and tragedy, and sorrow. And inside of us, there's this inner voice that says, that's just not fair. That's just not right. This shouldn't be happening. And even greater, how can the church possibly fix the injustices that are occurring in our world? How do we speak to that? Well, that's what I want to answer for us this morning. Let us first start by knowing this. We are all damaged goods. Every last one of us. And each of us has an expiration date that reads best when used before death. Mm -hmm. There are none righteous. No, not one. We're fortunate, though, 
that God has been clear in leaving us instructions regarding what he approves and what he doesn't approve. And to that end, he has left us some guarantees. Now, a guarantee is a formal assurance or promise. Anything that's guaranteed comes with a, a, a formal assurance or a promise regarding a product or a service or a transaction. This represents God's transaction with us. And this is God's product. And this product comes with certain guarantees. And then God talks to us about things that he does not guarantee. So I want to in that vein look at some things this morning that God guarantees first so that we're not confused about what God does and doesn't guarantee. We ought to know that. The first thing that God guarantees is that his word will not return void. That, when we talk about guarantees, that means you can take that to the bank. You can stick a pen in it. God's word will not return void. Isaiah chapter 55 and verse number 11. Now that simply means that exactly what God promised would happen has and is continuing to happen. The, the Bible is its best proof of authenticity because everything it promised to up to this time has happened. What more proof do we need? All you got to do is read the word and then look at what's happening around us. Look at what's happening in religious cycles. Look at what's happening in the church. Look at what's happening in individual lives. And we'll see that the book is perfect and what is in it. We don't have to guess about that. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse number 3, Paul told Timothy the time is coming when men will not endure sound doctrine. That's a guarantee. And what do we find happening today? We've come to a place. Are we there yet? Are we at that place yet where men will not endure sound doctrine? Sure we're there. And then Paul told Timothy again in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and the verse is two, that in these latter times, men would become lovers of themselves, boasters, proud, greedy, lascivious. All of that was promised before any of us were born, folks. And before the world existed in its present form in Birmingham, the Lord had already told us there's coming a time when folk are not going to want about know about me. And they're not going to receive sound doctrine. 
and they're not going to like anything religious, but they're going to be lovers of their own selves. And everything they do will be for their own personal gain. Are we there yet? That's the world we live in. Everybody's out for number one. I don't care what you want somebody to do. Their first question is, what's in it for me? How much am I going to get? Now, nobody's saying that ought not be a concern, but my God, does it always have to be the only and first concern? Before we even determine what we're going to do or what we're going to be involved in, how much, how much I'm going to get? And then if it's not enough, we say, well, I, I, that, that's, that's not worth my time. Forget doing good if I ain't going to get nothing out of it. Here's something else the word of God says. Get Matthew chapter 24, verse 35. My words will never pass away. You can change anything else you want to change, but this you can't change. They can change the Constitution. They can change laws and legislation, and they do it every day. But the Word of God cannot be changed. The Word of God will stand forever, according to Isaiah chapter 40 and verse number 8. The Word of God, according to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse number 16, the Bible says the Word is profitable for doctrine and reproof and instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto every good word. That's a guarantee that that's what this is for. If you're looking for doctrine, you're looking in the wrong place with ebony in your lap. You're looking in the wrong place if you're reading Isla Van Zandt stuff. Isla Van Zandt is nice, but she ain't got the gospel. So Isla can't fix your life. What you need is Jesus to fix your life. Going over there hugging your brother doesn't always get it done. Sometimes somebody has to change. Humble themselves. Admit they were wrong. Repent and change their behavior. And then maybe a hug will top that off. Psalm 119 verse, uh, division 89. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. That means when this was finished, it was finished. There are no addendums to this. If it didn't get in before Genesis or before uh, Revelations, you late. Now, I'm going to tell you how a lot of people get around that. They write disciplines and manuals as an addendum to this. Well, you know, we, we may run across some things that we don't like, so we reserve the right to have our own discipline or manual that the people at the church have decided that this is the way we're going to observe God's word. 
But the Bible says this is God's word and it was settled in heaven a long time ago and it remains settled there now just like it will be when the books are open on the day of judgment. These same words will judge us. And then James chapter 1 verse 25 tells us that this word is the perfect law of liberty. That it is perfect in what it teaches. It is perfect, flawless in what is here. And you know why that is? Because it was, it was created by a perfect God. Bible says when he created this world and looked at it, he said, oh, it's very good. What I've done is not average, it's very good. It's excellent. And so is his word. Something else that God does guarantee that those who will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. 2 Timothy 3.12, take that to the bank. Is there anybody who hasn't found that to be the case yet? You ever tried living godly in Christ Jesus and didn't suffer as a result of it? That's because the scripture says and guarantee if it's not happening, something is wrong. Something is wrong. Because those who will live godly shall suffer persecution. That's a guarantee that God stands behind. It's a promise. And then listen to this one. Matthew 26, 11. You remember... A lady, while Jesus was visiting, lady who was not the best representative, sat down at the feet of Jesus and poured some expensive ointment on his feet. Amen. Bible says she kind of rubbed it on his feet and then kind of dried it off with a hair. And the apostles said to Jesus, why this waste of ointment? That stuff very expensive, Jesus. We could have sold that and given it to the poor. And of course, one of the most ardent supporters of that idea was John, or Judas, because Judas was holding the bag and he was stealing from it. So he said, well, we get more money in here. That's more for me to ease off the top. So they all said to Jesus, why don't we sell it? Why are you allowing this waste? Jesus said, the poor you'll have with you always. And we normally quote that and we leave it right there. But it's the end of that verse that has the real power. Jesus says, but me you won't have with you always. So what are you doing, Jesus? I'm setting priorities. I'm not saying that we ought not have a social program. I'm not saying that we ought not pay attention to the poor, but that's not the first item of business. Jesus says, I'm the first order of business. You can help the poor, but I'm the first order of business here. Tend to me while I'm here with you because the poor you're going to have with you all the time. Now, Jesus, Jesus didn't say, 
if you feed one, I'll feed two. But he did say in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, if we'll plant and water, he'll give the increase. And I'm going to tell you what our primary directive is as we move to conclude this. In Matthew 28, 18 through 20, we have the primary directive for the church. Jesus is getting ready to leave his disciples. He's completed his earthly ministry. And he's getting ready to leave them this gospel, which they will re be responsible for taking to the world. Now, of all the things for him to say to them, things that carry importance, he didn't say, I want you to go out and I want you to find the poor and I want you to make sure you feed them and that'll make me happy with you. You know what Jesus said to him? Make disciples. That was his directive to him. Listen, folks, make disciples. That's the first order of business. I don't care what else we do well, we are not doing God's commandments if we don't first and foremost make disciples. That's why the world isn't changed. Because we're trying to go about it the wrong way. The way to change, how are we going to get, let me see, I had some things here for. We, 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 we remove one crooked politician and you get another one worse than the one before. How are we going to affect that? As Christ's people. We give everybody permission to protect themselves by owning a handgun and many go out and kill without cause. How are we going to change that? Acts of terrorism are being planned and carried out by our neighbor's children. How do we deal with that? Getting arrested is becoming synonymous with funeral preparations. How do we affect that? Domestic violence is spiraling out of control because the incidents come without warning and the police just can't be everywhere. How do we affect that as God's people? How can we have an impact on this? Otherwise, we'll eventually end up throwing up our hands because we can't make a dent. And the way we try to do it is the world's approach. And the world's approach is all wrong. Changing laws and legislation is not what Jesus prescribed. Here's what Jesus says is the key. Make disciples. In other words, if we can get people to allow the word to change their hearts, the rest will follow. And it's not going to happen. What's happening in our world is going to continue happening until men submit to Christ. It's going to get worse before it gets better. Because Jesus said, make disciples. It's all right to march, but that's not the first item of business. 
It's all right to make our placards about Jesus loving the sinner, but hating the lifestyle. But that's not the first item of business. The first item of business is something which we all must involve ourselves in, and that's making disciples. If that's not the first item on your agenda as a Christian, something is wrong with your agenda. I don't care what it is God has given you the ability to do. Every one of us must find a way to use that gift in making disciples. I don't care how pretty the building is. God not giving us a pass because we had a nice place. The only thing that's going to put us in the right relationship with God is to change men's hearts through the preaching of the word. Nothing will take the place of that. Now, I got just a, a couple of minutes to tell you what God does not guarantee. And then we're going to talk about that more tonight. I figured you needed to know more about what God does guarantee than you do what he doesn't. Because I hope you already know this. God has never guaranteed that life is fair. Where you get that idea from? For life is not fair. How can we say that? If, if you're born with all of your faculties and, and you are perfect specimen physically and then you look at somebody who's born with spina bifida who is confined to a wheelchair, how, how, how is life fair for those two? Life doesn't start out fair for some folks, but God does what he does because he's God. And for every person born like that, God has something in store for them. Some of them are sitting on the corner to show us where we live as we pass them and shake our heads and say, Lord, have mercy. But don't stop to say, can I help you in some kind of way? Can I push you a block or two? Because we too busy riding in the air condition and it's hot out there. No, life is not and God never guaranteed that it would be. Life is ugly. Mm -hmm. Sometimes as ugly as it is, beautiful. And then God uh, never guaranteed that we'll be able to fix anything that's unfair, though he expects us to work on fixing it. Did you hear what I said? God doesn't, folks, stop thinking that you're going to fix something. Stop thinking that Roosevelt City is going to fix something. We can't highlight the blight in our area and then accept the responsibility as Roosevelt City to fix it. Can you fix poverty? The Lord says you can't. Because we're going to have the poor with us always. So no matter how many folk we feed, no matter how often we feed them, 
the poor we're going to have with us always. You can't fix that. That ain't for us to fix. And sometimes we allow the fact that we're not making a dent in something to discourage us when that wasn't yours to fix in the first place. All God asks is that you work on it some. But some things we work on are never going to be fixed. There are some people, I don't care how much you love them, it won't be enough. I don't care how sweet, I don't care how much of their gruff you put up with, it will never be enough. You think they'd get to the place where they'd come to you and say, you know what, I know I've been a thorn in your side and you've just been nothing but an angel to me. And I'm ashamed of myself. People don't do that. People don't do that. The more you show them mercy, the more mercy they need. The more patient you are with them, the more patient you got to be with them. Some folk just can't be fixed. And it's not about us. You have to accept the fact after a while that it's not my job to fix them. It's my job to keep me intact. Let them be as crazy as they need to be, but make sure I keep me intact. Now let me show you, let me show you how that works. Lord have mercy. I'm almost there. Let me show you how that works. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul talks about foundations and laying foundations. And he said, really. There's no other foundation that can be laid than that which has been laid, which is Jesus Christ. <laughs> As a matter of fact, that's the only sure foundation. That's the only foundation that's going to stand the test of time when the storms of life come. Mm -hmm. He says, now if you build on this foundation, wood, stubble, hay, in other words, if property forms your foundation, there's a storm coming that's going to tear your foundation up. Because you got the wrong foundation. He says, if it's built on gold or silver, that's your money. See, some people's foundation is built on how much they got. In other words, they think they, you know what I'm saying? It's like, I don't have to deal with anything in the world I don't want to deal with because I got money. I can jump on a plane and get away from y'all and stay as long as I want to stay. Because I got my own money. But you know what? There are some things in life that your money can't get you out of. Doesn't make any difference how much of it you got. But if your foundation is built on money, it's not going to stand. There's coming a storm in your life where money will be shown to be ineffective. There are folk who live in mansions and billionaires who go to jail every day. And their money can't do nothing for them. They get the best lawyer. They, they, hey, 
Sorry. And that's what Paul is talking about. Make sure that the foundation you are building on is the right one. If you're building your foundation on your spouse, some storm is going to come through your life that's going to show you that your spouse can't do anything about this. I don't care how much y'all love each other. I don't care how long you've been together. But if that person forms your foundation, they're going to go down with the ship. Now, how do you know if they form your foundation, Brother Anthony? Well, do you respond to the Lord the way they respond to the Lord? Is the way you respond to the Lord contingent upon how they respond to the Lord? If you say, I'm not going to Wednesday night, do they say, well, I ain't going either. You ain't going. I ain't going either. I'm not going to church this morning. You're not? I'm not either. See, that person is your foundation. That's what you're building on. You're going today? Yeah, I'm going to. Oh, yeah, you don't. Don't look at me like that ain't coming your way. All I'm saying to you is when you allow people to do those kind of things, you are showing who your foundation is. And just as surely as that person is your foundation, a storm is coming your way where the Lord shows you that your house is built on sand. It's not built on rock. Hmm. Oh, we're going to finish this tonight. We're going to have to finish this tonight. And I got something else for you, too. Come back. Lord knows the Bible is so good. Ooh. Mm, mm, mm. Oh. Okay. Okay. I'm going to say this as I sit down. Don't, don't get carried away. Don't get it twisted, as the young people say. God has never guaranteed any man. You understand what I'm saying? The Lord has never guaranteed any person. Which means we're capable of doing anything. And God knows it better than we do. We can be faithful today, unfaithful tomorrow. Perfect in our intentions today, messed up tomorrow. Even with Job, in Job chapter 1, verse number 8, you know that when the devil presented himself along with the sons of God, before God, it was, Jesus, it was God who said to Satan, because he had been walking to and fro up and down, trying to seek whom he could devour, and the Lord said to him, have you considered my servant, Job? How that he is a perfect and an upright man? That wasn't a guarantee. That was what Job was at the moment. <laughs> Don't get confused now. He didn't say Job is a perfect and upright man for the duration. He didn't talk about what Job was going to do in the future. 
As of now, Job is a perfect and an upright man. But by the time we get to Job 38, God is having to tell Job, wait a minute, who you think you're talking to? Because Job got beside himself and he started demanding answers from God. And God had to put him in his place. Now this perfect and upright man is trying to stand toe to toe with God. I want to know why this stuff is happening to me. Lord said, oh yeah, I answer you too. But I want to ask you something first. This is why I, I like to remind us who we are. You lump of dirt. You lump of dirt. Where were you when I stretched the measuring tape on the universe? Where were you when I created the rivers and the oceans and set the boundaries, told the waves, come this far, but don't come no further? <laughs> Where were you, Job? And Job couldn't answer him. He humbled him. And I want to tell you something. We can be perfect at any given point in our intentions to do that which is right. You can get up in the morning intending to do nothing but right all day long. Have a song in your heart and humming amazing grace on the way to work and all is well with the world. And then you stop at the ATM machine and turns out that what you thought you had in there ain't in there no more. Your wife done got to it before you did or your husband got to it before you did and you put your card in and you want to get you a couple of hundred dollars and they say, insufficient fine. That's the first blow. Oh, you may keep on singing, but you're singing a little lower now. Oh, you've been there. Left home on a high. And then all day long, the devil was jooking with you. You get out of that, here comes somebody cutting you off and then flipping you the bird. Looking at you like you've lost your mind. Mm -hmm. Then you get to work. Somebody there coming at you with something you have no knowledge of, but you being accused. And then on the way home, Lord bless your heart, you got to come down 280 and it takes you two hours to get to the house. I guarantee you, the intentions that you left home with are not necessarily the intentions you get back home with. In time you walk in the door, somebody, Daddy, he hit me, and you just go off. It's like, if, if anybody else, and they looking at you like, what's wrong with you? Because they don't know what's happening and how the devil has been messing with you all day long. Because you left home a perfect and an upright man. But when you got back home, you found out how flawed intentions are. Intentions don't mean a thing if you don't carry through. What are your intentions today? Are you frustrated? 
Because you can't answer what's going on in the world. Do you feel it's all on your back to fix something? Only Jesus can fix it. Let him fix it for you this morning. Exercise your faith. Come forward and give Jesus your life. You've tried everything else. Why don't you give him a try? And I promise you, it's a guarantee that if you live godly in Christ Jesus as a member of his body, you'll hear him say, well done. You're a good and faithful servant. Lord bless you this morning as we together stand.